Last week, we took a brief look at the teaching of the church with respect to the gravity of impure thoughts and glances. We'll start with a quick review by reminding ourselves of the basic moral principle that governs all questions pertaining to the Sixth and Ninth Commandments. All pleasure outside of marriage that is associated with the creative power, all that kind of pleasure that is directly willed or desired, intentionally procured or permitted, is mortal sin. Therefore, it is mortally sinful for the unmarried to think, say, or do anything with the intention of arousing even the smallest degree of this type of sensual pleasure. Once again, we need to burn this into our minds. All pleasure outside of marriage that is associated with the creative power that is directly willed or desired, intentionally procured or permitted, is a mortal sin. And this means in the unmarried that it is morally sinful to think, say, or do anything with the intention of arousing even the smallest degree of this type of pleasure. We saw that if this type of pleasure has arisen and there was no intention and no consent, there's no sin. If there was no intention and some consent, toy with the idea for a while, it's a venial sin. If there's no intention and full consent, yahoo, bring that on, that's a mortal sin. And if there's actual intention, I am going to pick up that bad magazine. I am going to click on that website. That's a mortal sin. So remember, no intention, no consent, no sin. No intention, some consent, venial sin. No intention, full consent, mortal sin. Direct intention, mortal sin. We saw that we have to be absolutely determined to avoid the occasions of these types of sin, whether it be bad websites, bad movies, bad television, bad magazines, bad music, and especially bad company. We saw that if we have the Internet, we need to have the woman of the house or a good friend put on a filter accountability wear like covenant eyes on the computer. We saw that we need to ensure that the TV is a means of growing in holiness and not an occasion of sin. I did have a lot of comments about the 10-gauge. I understand. You can use a caliber of your choice fix the TV. We saw that we need to get to confession regularly, make fervent communions. We saw we need to pray the rosary daily and say the three Hail Marys first thing in the morning for holiness and purity according to our state and life during the day. And last thing before we go to bed, for holiness and purity at night. Okay? We saw we need to practice bodily mortifications every day, turning on cold water at the end of your shower taking one piece of food and seasoning it in a highly annoying way and eating anyway, putting a bean or a pebble or something smooth in one shoe one day, the other one the next day, practice looking away from attractive things and keeping busy. We need to practice those mortifications. We learned a spiritual wrestling or martial arts move to use. We want to employ this when temptation is directly upon us. It involves moving our mind and moving our body. Remember how we move our mind. We say, precious blood wash over me. That gets the devil out. Precious blood wash over me. Then we say, Jesus, Mary, Joseph, St. Maria, Gretti, guardian angel, because that gets heaven in. 
And then we think about Kunun in Montana or something beautiful that's sensual and outside and has no connotations that, that have anything to do with, with purity issues, okay? So we move our mind by saying, precious blood wash over me, Jesus married Joseph, Saint Maria Gretti, guardian angel, help me. Then think about Kunun in Montana. That's how we move my mind, and we move our body by moving our body. So that's what we do, move our mind, move our body. And as St. Philip Neri, remember, he says, the only in these battles, the only people that win are the cowards. We have to run away. Okay, so much for the review. Before we turn to today's topic, let's pause and ask ourselves a question. Why is it that all the pleasure associated with the creative power completely restricted to the married and strictly forbidden to the unmarried? The answer is it's part of God's plan that babies be born to married couples. God has blessed mankind with the power to bring forth new life. That's his first blessing on man. You can read about it. Moses records it in Genesis. Be fruitful and multiply. That's the first blessing God put on man. So God has blessed man with this power to bring forth new life. And this creative power has to be carefully shielded with modest and pure behavior. It's a gift from God that's meant to be used by married couples and by married couples alone. Okay, I'm going to read something, a point made very clear by Pope Pius XI in his encyclical on Christian marriage. Now, I'll just tell you, as usual in my sermons, I cut and paste and abbreviate for the sake of time. It isn't an academic exercise. We're trying to teach you what the church says. And sometimes I will modify a word because I don't necessarily want to teach the young people certain things. Okay, Pope Pius XI, quote, The primary end of marriage is the procreation and education of children. Since the duty entrusted to parents is of such high dignity and of such great importance, every use of the faculty given by God for the procreation of new life is the right and the privilege of the married state alone and must be confined absolutely within the sacred limits of that state. Close quote, the vicar of Christ. The primary end of marriage is the procreation and education of children. The duty entrusted to parents is of such high dignity and of such great importance that every use of the great creative power is the right and the privilege of married people alone and must be confined absolutely within the sacred limits of the state of marriage. Once we see what God has in mind, then the principle is easy to understand why it is that any and all pleasure associated with this faculty has been set aside for the married. It's God's gift to the married couple. And once we see that, it makes it easy to understand the sixth and ninth commandments. Thou shalt not commit adultery and thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. On the one hand, these two commandments require each man to preserve his purity of mind and body according to the rule of right reason and the holy faith. And on the other hand, they prohibit him from sinning against purity in thought, word, or deed. Let's quickly consider how these commandments apply to the married and to the unmarried. The married. As we just heard from the Pope, the primary purpose of marriage is the procreation and education of children. Here's the secondary purpose of marriage. The secondary purpose of marriage is the mutual help and comfort of the spouses and the remedy for concupiscence. Okay, great, Padre. So understand what you mean in the primary purpose by the procreation and education of children. And understand what you, part of what you mean in the second one when you talk about the mutual help and comfort of spouses. 
But what does it mean when you say the remedy for concupiscence? In this case, the word concupiscence is just a $4 fancy theological word that means the desires of the flesh. So when we say it's a remedy for concupiscence, the secondary purpose of marriage is a remedy for the desires of the flesh. So, again, the primary purpose of marriage is the procreation and education of children, and the second is the comfort and mutual helpless spouses and remedy for desires of the flesh. Okay? Those are the purposes of marriage. Now, what does that have to do with the Sixth and Ninth Commandments? Okay, acts between spouses are good to the degree that they conform to these two purposes of marriage. Again, the general principle is everything conformity with these two purposes, the primary and secondary purposes of marriage, is good and permissible. Anything opposed is evil and forbidden. Examples of evil and forbidden acts would include adultery in thought or deed, contraception, and direct sterilization. I note that this year uh, is the 50th anniversary of, on, on Mother's Day, of, of uh, contraception. I think the pill coming out, somebody told me. I note to our sorrow. The unmarried, in order to preserve modesty, not corrupt the innocent, will only consider one sin. You don't have to plug your children's ears and run out screaming when I start talking. It'll be all right. We'll only consider one sin, and once we understand that, we'll understand all the other possibilities, okay? Well, speaking about the unmarried, Pope Alexander VII condemned the idea that it is only a venial sin for the unmarried to kiss for the sensual pleasure arising from the kiss, even if there's no danger of further consent or of going any farther. It's condemned by the Pope to say that it's only a venial sin for the unmarried to deliberately kiss for the sensual pleasure of kissing. That is a condemned moral error. I'll repeat it. It's condemned to say it's only a venial sin for the unmarried to kiss for the sensual pleasure rising from the kiss, even if there's no danger of further consent or going any farther. It's condemned. What does this mean? We'll turn to St. Alphonsus. Why St. Alphonsus? God sends saints to teach us how, what the church means. St. Alphonsus is called the doctor of moral theology. He's, that means if we want to know what the church's teaching is on any moral issue, we start with St. Alphonsus and look at what his explanation is. He's the great and holy doctor of moral theology. St. Alphonsus, quote, speaking of this Alexander VII's condemnation, quote, this means that every time someone with sufficient reflection and full consent of the will delights in carnal or sensual pleasure associated with someone to whom he is not married, he commits a mortal sin. This is not only true with kisses, but also with respect to other touches performed for carnal pleasure. The reason is that any delight taken in carnal pleasure, that is to say, any delight taken in stirring up the appetite surrounding the creative power, is a movement towards the marital act. Close quote, the doctor of moral theology of the universal church. Again, every time someone with sufficient reflection and full consent of the will delights in carnal or sensual pleasure associated with someone to whom he is not married, he commits a mortal sin. The reason is that any delight taken in stirring up the appetites surrounding the creative power is a movement towards a marital act which is completely reserved to the married. Here's the point. For the unmarried, passionate kissing is mortally sinful. Why? Because it's passionate. The unmarried do not 
have the right to deliberately stir up those passions, whether by thought, word, or deed. Those passions, those delights, those pleasures are strictly reserved by God to the married and to no one else. That's the reason, okay? Remember that little chart. There's a reason we've been going through it. No intention, no consent, no sin. You had the pleasure rise. No intention, no consent, no sin. No intention, some consent, venial sin. No intention, full consent, mortal sin. Direct intention, mortal sin. Okay, passionate kissing is not an accident. Well, Father, I was just walking down the street, and I accidentally bumped into a strange girl, and suddenly we found ourselves locked in a passionate kiss. If that doesn't sound right, there's a reason, because that's not how it happens. Now, there's two ways it could happen. People are really pious and being good and trying to be careful, and they just don't realize their weakness and go over a whole bunch of lines. That's one possibility. There was no intention, the next thing you know, though. Or they intended. But in either case, no intention. But passionate kissing, there's going to be a consent somewhere along the line. It's not something, it's not like meteorites hitting Earth. Something had to happen to have that, okay? So it's either no intention, full consent, or no, no intention, or direct intention, okay? Now, in either case, whether there's no intention, full consent, or the intent, it falls under the papal ban, right? It's banned. We can't do it. Let's make sure we absolutely have this clear. For the unmarried, passionate kissing is morally sinful because it's passionate. The unmarried don't have the rights to that pleasure, to those delights, to those feelings. And they don't have the right to stir them up deliberately by thought, word, or deed. Again, if it's indeliberate, that's where that chart will help you. But no deliberate stirring them up. Those passions are reserved to the married and to no one else. It's God's blessing. It's a great gift that God has given to the married couple. Once we understand that, we don't go, have to go through this big, long laundry list where you're taking your children out quickly before the priest says the next horrible sin. We get it. Once we see it, the whole drop-down menu, you understand everything there. All right. So before we go any... Now, usually when I do this, when I talk about this, and I've seen it, so I'm trying not to look out there as I say this, you'll see people with a panic-stricken look on their face. And uh, I'll take off my glasses for a sec. Just anybody that might be panicking, you don't have to run out there to the confessional to get there. Relax. Don't worry. You didn't know before. Remember, one of the conditions of a mortal sin, to commit it, you have to know it's seriously wrong. So you didn't know before, right? So be at peace. You're safe, huh? But don't do it anymore, all right? Go and sin no more. You get married, you're good to go. All right, there we go. I got my glasses back on. Now I can see. All right. Now that we see the problem with passionate kissing, the basic moral principle is really clear. All pleasure outside of marriage that is associated with the creative power that is directly willed or desired, intentionally procured or permitted, is mortally sinful. So in the unmarried, it's mortally sinful to think, say, or do anything with the intention of arousing even the smallest degree of this type of sensual pleasure. That's why that chart is so useful. You'll know from now on, no intention, no consent, no sin. The pleasure can arise, but no intention, no consent, no sin. No intention, some consent, venial sin. No intention, full consent, mortal sin. Actual intention, mortal sin. Okay, before we close, let's answer a few common objectives. But Father, everybody does this. I just say, that's convincing. Ask your mom, then come back and tell me what she says, you know. I think that every Catholic mom in the world has the same thing about running off. Everybody's running off a cliff or saying something like that. Everybody knows this one. Okay, what, what if we really like each other, Father? Well, presumably, you wouldn't want to passionately kiss somebody you don't like. 
but we're already engaged. All the reason to be more careful. You're still not married, and traditionally, the honeymoon is after the marriage. Are you saying we can't kiss at all? No, of course not. Unmarried people can kiss. It's not necessarily a good idea, and they certainly don't have to, but they can kiss. Well, how's that, Father? I thought you said we couldn't. No. The kisses allowed to unmarried people are just like the little kisses you might give to your great-grandma or great-grandpa, you know, or the ones you see like French guys do in the movies, the little peck on the cheek sort of thing, okay? No passion at all. That's perfectly legal, okay? No passion. You know, a cultural kiss, you'd call it. It's like a hello kiss. Uh, That's okay. But Father... No one can live like this. Well, naturally speaking, that may be true. But God never commands it possible. That's why he gave us supernatural powers. The whole object of sanctifying grace, it's a new kind of life that gives us powers to live in a way that other people can't live, okay? Avoid the near occasion of sin. Say your three Hail Marys every morning and every night. Say your rosary. Do your mortification. Go to confession every week or two. Make fervent communions. You'll be good to go. Catholics have been living like this for 2,000 years. It doesn't change. God isn't going to have a new idea. He already knows it all. He isn't gonna, we're not going to give him any new ideas. He knows everything. He doesn't need our advice. If he said that's how it is, that's how it is. So we have to bring our mind around to his way of thinking. This is how it is. No passion outside of marriage. Period. Close the book. Okay. We've seen the power to bring forth life is a holy power, which God expects us to carefully guard with modesty and pure behavior. That this gift is God's special gift, its power, that's meant to be used by married couples and by married couples alone. We've seen this point very pointedly emphasized by Pope Pius XI, who said, and I quote, the primary end of marriage is the procreation and the education of children. The duty entrusted to parents is of such high dignity and of such great importance that every use of the great creative power is the right and the privilege of married people alone and must be confined absolutely within the sacred limits of the state of marriage. We've seen to the degree that we clearly see and understand this idea that the use of this great creative power is the right and privilege of married people alone. To that very degree, we'll clearly understand the reasons behind it and we'll be able to understand and defend the teaching of the church with respect to the Sixth and Ninth Commandments. We've seen for the unmarried, passionate kissing is mortally sinful simply because those passions are sinful for the unmarried to deliberately stir up. Those passions... Those delights, those pleasures are God's gift to the married and the married alone. Once we understand that, it's obvious what kind of behaviors are prohibited. Once again, we've seen that fundamental principle that all pleasure outside of marriage that is associated with the creative power that is directly willed or desired, intentionally procured or permitted, is a mortal sin, which means for the unmarried it's mortally sinful to think say or do anything with the intention of stirring up even the smallest degree of this type of pleasure, if that pleasure has arisen, has arisen and there's no intention and no consent, there's no sin, if there's no intention and some consent, it's a venial sin, no intention, full consent, it's a mortal sin, direct intention, mortal sin. Look, I know it wouldn't take five minutes of shopping around to find a priest that's going to tell you something different than what you just heard tonight. I know that. I know that it, uh, you could go to the average Catholic bookstore and find a lot of books, even new books, published by guys with imprimaturs and whatnot that aren't going to tell you these things, okay? I know that, but we don't make this stuff up. That's why I'm quoting a pope in the Doctrine of Moral Theology, so you can be absolutely sure you're hearing the authentic teaching of the Catholic Church. So you can be absolutely sure you're hearing the teaching of Christ and not my whacked opinions, because my opinions are no better than anybody else's. 
We're in sales, not management. We don't make this stuff up. It comes from God, and our job is to make it as clear as possible what God wants us to do. We assume that if you're coming here, it's because you want to be a saint. Okay? That means cleaving to Christ, and that means, in this day and age, being countercultural. Radically countercultural. We are the counterculture. Authentic, unapologetic Catholicism is the counterculture to this sewage of this culture of death that we live in. And because we're the counterculture, we're going to be different. And God expects that of us. He's put us here to be 11. Our actions are going to be different. Our speech is going to be different. Our dress is going to be different. Our thoughts are going to be different. And they're going to be different from the society to the exact degree that this society has veered away from the path of godliness and holiness. And my friends, that is a huge veer. They're going over the waterfalls. God has put us here to be faithful. We have to worry more about what does he think than what does everybody else think. Let's close by pondering one last question, and it's a good question. Given that sins against the Sixth and Ninth Commandment are not the worst sins, because they certainly aren't, these are not the worst sins. Missing Mass deliberately is a worse sin than everything we've just talked about. Blasphemy is a worse sin. Playing with the Ouija board is a worse sin. Serious disobedience of your parents is a worse sin. The commandments, there's an order to them for a reason. These are not the worst sins. But given they're not worse sins, why are you priests so concerned about modesty and purity? We'll turn to St. Alphonsus. Quote, Sins against the Sixth and Ninth Commandments are by far the most common matters in confessions and are the sins which fill hell with souls. Since these are the most frequent and most abundant confessional matters, and on account of which the greater number of souls fall into hell, indeed, I do not hesitate to assert that all those who are damned are damned on account of this one vice of impurity, or at least not without it. Close quote, St. Alphonsus. Sins against the Sixth and Ninth Commandments are by far the most frequent and most abundant matters in confession, on account of which the greater number of souls fall into hell. I do not hesitate to assert that all those who are damned are damned on account of this one vice of impurity, or at least not without it. St. Alphonsus is not the only one who's warned us. On July 13, 1917, Our Lady showed the three children at Fatima a terrifying vision. She opened her hands, and suddenly they found themselves standing on the brink of a sea of fire, all these massive flames. And they saw it was filled with huge numbers of devils that looked like horrible black animals, and they're filling the air with horrible shrieks. There are also huge numbers of damned souls tumbling around in the flames and, and screaming in terror and agony. At the same time, they saw these souls falling into hell like snowflakes in a blizzard. And Blessed Jacinda tells us that Our Lady said that more souls go to hell because of sins of the flesh than any other reason. Sins 
of the flesh. If you want to know why your priests are worried about modesty and purity, ask Our Lady of Fatima or St. Alphonsus. <laughs>